Well, Jesus said in Matthew 16, said, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There is a worldwide church that is being built by Jesus and is being built by him to prevail. Next Sunday, we got it reserved for talking about some of the faults and mistakes of the church, but this Sunday, you'll have to beg my pardon. Just uh, today, I'm just going to talk about all the church and the wonderful things she is and how much Jesus loves her and all the wonderful things that have been going on for the past 2,000 years. So today, I want to tell you about why church? Why do we come together? What is the church? And, uh, you know, some in the church, there have been these prevailing moments when the church has been victorious, when she has done when she is supposed to have done, and it's been beautiful and marvelous. In fact, some of those moments have just happened recently, just after the Hurricane Katrina, before the government can ever think of responding who was there, the church made up of mobilized local churches and denominations of the Christian faith. They were there in New Orleans with semi-trucks, with food, with water, with clothing, with temporary shelter, with medical aid and cleanup. And the church demonstrated mercy and grace in tangible ways that people could feel and people needed. It was beautiful. The church prevailed in that moment. Just over 1,800 years ago, when the church was young, the church was doing the same thing. A church leader named Dionysius described how Christ followers responded to the plague of, in 260 A.D. He said this, Most of our brethren were unsparing in their exceeding love and brotherly kindness. They held fast to each other and visited the sick fearlessly and ministered to them continually, serving them in Christ. And they died with them most joyfully, taking the affliction of others and drawing the sickness from their neighbors to themselves and willingly receiving their pains. But with the heathen, everything was quite otherwise. They deserted those who began to get, be sick and fled from their dearest friends. And they cast them into the streets when they were half dead and left the dead like refuse unburied. At other moments, the church prevailing moments were expressions of mercy but of justice. In 2001, when urban schools in Kansas City were suffering, a local church leader challenged his suburban congregation. And he challenged specifically the teachers and administrators to leave their suburban jobs and begin teaching in the inner city. Each person in his congregation wrote a note of encouragement to the city teachers, or 5,700 individual letters, many with phone numbers and offers to help the teachers. The teachers were overwhelmed, and many of them felt the encouragement and the support. Many of the teachers contacted individuals who then became involved in tutoring and reading programs in the inner city schools. Hundreds of years ago, in the 5th century, St. Patrick and his fellow Christ followers spoke out against slavery during his 28 years of ministry in Ireland. And the Irish slave trade came to a halt just after his death. Several hundred years later, in the 1700s, during the Great Awakening, not just spiritual awakening that was happening, but it was a spiritual awakening that motivated people to move to action. And the gospel was proclaimed and demonstrated by working for prison and labor reform, the building of orphanages and schools, ending slave trade, and providing medicines and health treatment for the poor. The church's prevailing moments 
are not always expressions of mercy and justice. Many times, they've just been reflections of love. Today, if you go to Irving, California, a church reaches out there in their community to a convalescent home uh, for seniors. And what they do is they host every year a, a senior prom. And the young men of the church dance with the elderly women. And the young women of the church take the arms of the older gentlemen. Walkers and canes are put away for the evening. And women and men feel the joy of youth that they hadn't felt in a long time and heard the music of days gone past that they thought was long forgotten. It's something that can't be measured on this giving and this expression of love. So sometimes maybe some spiritual bookkeepers may say it's a waste. But just like Jesus, when a woman poured expensive perfume on his feet, I think most of us could say, that is just simply a beautiful thing. That is beautiful. These prevailing moments of the church are just a small sample of the beautiful, exciting, and good things the church has been doing over for the past 2,000 years. These are identifiable things that the church does. And it makes us see that the church has historically an external transforming focus. But the question remains for us today, what is church? That's what church does, but what is church? Is church a building? Is church just an hour on Sunday? There are many of us that ask the question, why church? And we're not asking it out of some sort of rebellious spirit. It's simply because we've never been told. We've never heard. We'd like to know what the truth is. What is it all about? What is church? How did it start? Why is it here? Why be a part? Why Sunday? Are some of the questions I hope that we can answer by going back and looking to the originator of the church, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus' words to Peter were, on this rock, I will build my church. First of all, you got to know is the church is something Jesus is building, although there might be some of us who think it's us building it. Second, the church is his possession, not ours. Jesus said, my church were the, Jesus, were the words he used. Before the building of the church, before Jesus began, Jesus also mentions the foundation, a rock. When Jesus spoke of the church he was going to build upon a rock, Peter had just answered Jesus' question, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It was upon that truth, the truth, upon Jesus Christ, upon himself, that Jesus was going to build. Jesus only used the word church several times. And, when he, was, and he was never describing a building or a meeting place, nor was he describing a meeting that had a duration of an hour or two hours on a Sunday. Church was people, people that were Christ followers, known by God. Church meant believers whether they were gathered in a meeting or not, whether they had a building or not. When Jesus used the word church, as it's recorded in the book of Revelation, he was speaking to all the Christ followers of one town or city. It was the church of Sardis. It was the church of Ephesus. It was the church of Pergamum. Another name that Jesus used more often that included not only Christ followers, but also the citizens of heaven and all the angelic hosts was the name Kingdom of God. So sometimes you might hear or read about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And it's an all-inclusive name that excludes people and areas that are in rebellion to God. 
to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Where is the kingdom of God? Where is the kingdom of heaven? The answer is wherever Jesus is king. That's where the kingdom of God is. If Jesus is king of my heart, then this right here is his home turf. I am a part of his kingdom if he is king over me. But when we are specifically talking about God's kingdom, kingdom work here on earth, usually we're talking about the church. Now just to clarify, when I say a church, I mean a local identifiable group of Christ followers like Grace Presbyterian Church or Central United Methodist Church or Biltmore Baptist Church. They're all local groups of Christ followers that gather to encourage and practice the Christian faith. And when I say the church with a capital C, I mean all Christ followers across the world that are identifiable only to God, regardless of the label worn in the local community. Well, I'm a Baptist, or I'm a Methodist, or I'm a Lutheran, or whatever. If I or others were to say the Church of Asheville, we would be talking about all Christ followers in this region, identifiable by God, no matter what local church they attended on some certain street in Asheville. The church was started by the Father's plan, Jesus' command, and the arrival of the Holy Spirit in believers' lives. Let me say, it wasn't started by men. It was started by the Father's plan. It was started by Jesus' command and the arrival of the Holy Spirit in believers' lives on the day of the Jewish celebration of Pentecost. On the Father's timetable, Jesus was crucified on the Jewish celebration of Passover when a lamb was sacrificed. Jesus was sacrificed on the cross. Three days later, there was another Jewish celebration called First Fruits, where a priest would look in a field for the first seed broken out of the soil with a sprout, just as Jesus, like a seed, was buried and then broke out of the grave. So Jesus met and spoke with his followers after his resurrection. And for the next 40 days, and one time, he appeared to over 500 people at one time. 1 Corinthians 15, 6 says that. And after 40 days... Jesus met with his followers one last time and he commanded them to go and wait in Jerusalem to receive from the Father the Holy Spirit and then to be his witnesses to the end of the world. Again, this is Jesus' command, telling them what to do. The disciples, at this point, they're just kind of like, huh, what? What do we do? They're still in shock. Jesus, you're alive. Wow. And, and, they're, and they're talking with him and he's telling them all about all the things that he told them before and now they're going oh now it makes sense oh I get it and so anyway they go to Jerusalem they wait for nine more days and then after nine days there's this other Jewish celebration that happens and it's called Pentecost and on that day is when a Jewish priest went to a field and gathered an armful of ripened grain and he brought it back to the temple to grind the grain and make it into a loaf of bread to offer up to God in a thanksgiving sacrifice. So we went from this first fruits, this timetable of God, where he's, it seems like he's working with these festivals and these, these Jewish celebrations. It goes from the first fruit, where one seed sprouts from the ground, Jesus' resurrection. And then it comes to this, many seeds that are gathered 
because they've been planted and harvested in many seeds which are made to form one loaf, one body, the body of Christ, the church on the day of Pentecost. It's amazing. God has this timetable. It wasn't man's timetable. We would never have figured that out. And it's amazing how God was arranging this. And again, I tell you, the disciples, they're just like, okay, whatever you want me to do. Okay, we're following you, Lord. And the apostle Peter, along with others, other apostles, spoke of Christ on that day. And on that day, there were people from all over the Roman Empire gathered in Jerusalem. And when the Holy Spirit came, the apostles were anointed by the Holy Spirit, and they were able to speak different languages of the men who came from all over the Roman Empire, languages that they had not known before, and able to communicate with people that they hadn't been able to communicate with. And as they spoke, people heard in their own language the message of Jesus Christ and what had happened. And 3,000 people believed on that day and were baptized into Christ. The church grew rapidly in just one day. It's the first day. It went from 120 people huddled in an upper room waiting as Jesus commanded in Jerusalem. 120 people to 3,000 people. Before ever there was a calling of, hey, let's have an official meeting. Let's get everybody together. It was an unannounced launch. It was not by the master design of some corporate trained man. The church started by the Father's plan, Jesus' command, and the arrival of the Holy Spirit in believers' lives. Now, what happened on the day after? Monday. What happened on a Monday? Well, a lot of those 3,000 new believers were Jewish out-of-towners from all over, came to Jerusalem. Well, they decided to stay. I don't know how that happened. I don't know if it was just something the Holy Spirit communicated to them in their hearts or if they're just words spread like wildfire and said, hey, we're staying. And I, want, I want to know Christ. But I don't know how it happened. But they all decided to stay. And they all gathered together in the only place that could hold that many people, an outdoor pavilion of sorts that was, had a great patio and a roof off the back of the temple in Jerusalem. And it was called Solomon's Porch. And they met there. And the 12 disciples, now called apostles, were leading this group of 3,000 who had dropped everything to gain the depths of riches of knowing Jesus Christ. And I'm sure it was an electric meeting, very electric. Afterwards, there were a few of the 3,000 who lived in town, and they opened up their homes to the out-of-towners who were making plans on how they were going to sleep, eat, and work. And it was a staggering problem for a brand-new church on its very first day, how to house 3,000 people. But because of the flood tide of joy, people were willing to share what they had, while others sold what they had to provide more space in their home or to rent more space for new believers to share. People were piled into homes in the evenings, sleeping anywhere near a kitchen with food. People at jobs in town started sharing their wages with others for grocery money. Those who could offer jobs hired new employees who were probably overqualified but willing to do any kind of work so they could stay in town and they could just know more about Jesus. New believers sent messages home to people telling family to sell everything or to come and join them. It was all makeshift, wild, ridiculous circumstances that God used to smash rituals, rip apart customs, destroy social taboos, 
and produce an all-new atmosphere where this revolutionary thing called the church could be born. It immediately began to look like an answer to Jesus' prayer. He prayed before he went to the cross. In John 17, he says, I pray also for those who believe in me through their message that all of them will be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. For some reason, they were unified. They wanted to be together. And I think it was just this whole enamored with Jesus, overwhelmed with him. An incredible unity came about as new believers learned from the apostles what walking out life with Jesus was about. And it was a unity that came from God's Holy Spirit. Church life for the next eight years looks something like this in what's recorded in Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. For eight years, it seemed like as they were gathering together, it seemed like the apostles forgot that command, Jesus said, to go to the ends of the earth. They just stayed there. But God was doing something. He was God, God was doing something among the apostles, among those believers. God was raising up and maturing and developing other leaders in this church life, people like Stephen, people like Philip, people who had never met Jesus or walked with him, yet they were just as Christ-like and powerful as the apostles. What is church life? What is that like? It's hard to explain because it's really something you just experience. But it's something that here at Highland we want to invite people to be a part of. That's what we say, belong before you believe. You may believe some weird things, but it's all right. Come and just experience what it is to be with Christians and to do life with Christians because there's so much we can't explain. We don't know how to put into words. And so we just want you to come and be a part. And we believe that God will work belief in your heart in time. But when I was 14 and just handed my life over to Jesus Christ, there was an excitement to know I was not alone on this journey following Jesus there was a group of Christ followers I was so eager to be with, to share with, to talk about life with, to find encouragement together on how to be better Christ followers. Even though on my school campus, I sometimes felt very alone, I knew that there was a crew of other young people just as sold out to Jesus Christ as I was. So I had courage. I had courage because I knew they were there somewhere. I had courage to live and choose like a true Christ follower, even if it meant social suicide for me at school. And when I got back together with those Christians, we shared the stories of our choices to follow Jesus. Church life for me was vital and simple. It was just doing life together. I think of that community that I was a part of, and there were so many of us that grew up together, served together, and went on to lead within the church in unofficial and official ways. It's a community that changed my life. It's where I came to know Jesus. It's how I grew in Him. It's where I was commissioned. It was where I was ordained as a pastor. It's where I was married. It's where I buried my father-in-law. 
It's where my children first came to be nurtured in the faith. And I can imagine the same sort of excitement that was generated from doing life together among those first believers after the birth of the church. And I suppose that they enjoyed it so much that they never wanted to part from the community that they had developed. But God had a plan. Jesus had a command. And the Holy Spirit was transforming people from the inside out. And in that eighth year of the church, there were close to around 20,000 Christ followers packed into Jerusalem. Persecution hit. There's a guy that's kind of famous now. His name was Saul. Later became the Apostle Paul. But he was leading the persecution against the church. And uh, during that time, the church scattered. They fled. Most everyone fled except for the apostles. But they didn't flee as defeated people. And this is the interesting thing. They fled for their lives. They were smart. They weren't stupid. But they had something in them that was still, still there from that church life that they shared. There was something that was in them, and it was God's Spirit. And they were alive, and they were real. They were authentic. And there was something that they just had to share, they had to talk about. And when they walked in, maybe it happened this way, as they scattered, and they, they maybe found a couple of, of friends on the road. And they say, hey, well, let's stop at this town. And when they walked into the town, they would walk in, and they go to the city market, and they start talking with people, and they'd be like, well, what are you doing here? How come you came to town? Well, hey, haven't you heard what's happening in Jerusalem? And they tell them the story of the persecution that was going against this new church, this, this thing that was happening. And as they shared, the people would ask more questions. Well, what were you guys doing? Why were you meeting at the temple? And why are, why are the people so angry about you? Well, it's because. And then they go on, and they begin sharing more about the past eight years and so much so that they'd have to say, well, you know what? Man, it's getting dark. I mean, they're closing the city gates and market's shutting down. Come back here tomorrow and we'll tell you more about what was going on in Jerusalem and what happened in our lives. Just multiply that about 100 times over. And during the next four years of the church, there were about 150 churches that were started in Judea, in the area. See, God had a plan and he was sending his people out. It looked like persecution on the inside, but on the outside, God, he was doing something big. He was getting the word out. He was fulfilling Jesus' commands to go to the ends of the world. Well, over the next few years, the apostles, they began going to visit these groups of people, these new believers that were meeting in different towns. And as they went to go meet with them, they would encourage them, say, keep on, keep on in the faith, keep moving forward. Keep growing in Christ. And they would teach them. They would bless them. And after 14 years from the church, when it finally started, the apostles finally began to leave Jerusalem for good. And they finally began going to the ends of the earth because it was time. And over those 14 years, there have been leaders that have been developed. And that church in Jerusalem regained ground and became solid again and once became a place where people were nurtured in the faith, and grew. But it took 14 years for God to initiate His plan and begin sending people out all the world. And I want you to know that we're a new church. We just started October 9th, 2005. There's a lot of things that are happening, a lot of nurturing and growing in faith. And I know that God had patience with His people back when it began. 
in the very beginning. And I know God's going to have patience with us too. And I hope that some of you will have patience too as we're growing and God is raising up leaders within this church. He's maturing and developing us. But there are good things that are going to be happening. And I'm excited about what's going to happen. All right, so I've, I've shared a little bit of the history of the church, which any of you could read from the scriptures in the book of Acts. So how can some of this answer some of our questions? Questions like, why does the church exist? Well, it could have been, it could have been like this. It could have been that when you became a Christ follower, when you said, Jesus is Lord, and I, I give him my life, that you were suddenly whisked away and you went to the present heaven to be with Jesus. And that was it. It could have been that way. could have been all done. But God didn't do it that way. He left us here. Why did he do that? God has some other purpose. And he's keeping us around here on this earth. The church exists to fill, fulfill its mission, the mission that Jesus gave, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. In other words, the church exists for those who are not in it. Isn't that wild? The church exists for those who are not in it. Jesus has brought me into his church, into his spiritual family. And I, and I help make the church function because I become a vital part, just like you become a vital part. And I even benefit and grow because of the church, because I'm in the church. But the church doesn't exist for me. It exists for those who are not in it. Isn't that wild? So why does God want to work through the church instead of some other form or individual or some superhero. The church, you remember, is people. People that God has rescued and redeemed. He loves them affectionately. And he loves you deeply. And he calls you his bride. Through the people of the church, God has demonstrated his grace and mercy. Through you and me, He's demonstrated His grace and mercy. And it's through us, through the people of the church, this beautiful instrument that He wants to demonstrate His grace and mercy to those on the outside of the church. It is through the church that God is demonstrating His heart for all nations and all people groups and is accomplishing His will. Do you know the, the gospel started with the Jewish people in Western Asia? In Western Asia... And then it spread to the continents of northern Africa and to Europe. And over the past thousand years, God has reached into North America and South America and then into Southern Africa and into Southeastern Asia. Right now, two-thirds of all Christ's followers on this planet are non-white and live in the Southern Hemisphere outside of Western civilization. I share that with you because I know sometimes people want to criticize the church for being a white man, Western civilization religion. It's not anymore. It's not. And in fact, those people that are Christ followers in the church, in the Southern Hemisphere, they're sending people to us in the Northern Hemisphere now, which includes the United States. They're sending missionaries to our country. Things have changed. Things have changed. 
God is working and moving through his people, the church. So what is the form of the church? Is there some correct gathering? Or is there some incorrect way to gather? What is the form? From the start, the first believers met as a large group on Solomon's porch and in small groups in believers' homes. Over time, the frequency, because they did this every single day for eight years, and then things kind of changed after that. But over time, the frequency of how often and how long this, this happened, this, this changed. But most consistently, practice form has seemed to be these two wings, where there's a large gathering of believers, and then there is this small gathering of believers. But right now, you're participating in a large group gathering. But from this large group, there are also small groups. We call them gel groups that are meeting in people's homes and other comfortable places where community is being built. People are doing life together. But the thing to remember is that the scriptures talk about the form of the church being like a human body. And I want to tell you this because in some other cultures, Christ followers can't gather together in a large group. It's not the form there. And so God may do something different. He may change things the way things are done here in the States. And so I want you to know that ultimately the Bible talks about the body, the church, and its form being like a body. A human body grows. It matures. It moves. It flows. It's complex. It has many parts. I'm looking for my Frisbees. Here they are. And a lot of times I feel like it's this. It's like it's not a giant amoeba. The church is not a giant one-cell amoeba that just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger into this giant blob. The church is, is like all these little, these little circles, series of circles. And it's like, here, grab onto this, on this little circle. And you grab onto that, Michelle. Darren, you grab onto that. And Sherry, grab onto this. Okay? So we're grabbing onto that and with one hand. And with the other hand, we're reaching out. And with that other hand... I'm reaching out over here. And Darren, you're grabbing that and you're reaching out with your hand. And somebody grabs onto that. Yeah, Rachel, grab onto that. And James, grab onto that. And this is more what I think the form of the church is. It's like a complex body. And it just kind of spreads and scatters everywhere. But it's interconnected. It's not independent. But yet each of these little circles might look very unique and have a different flavor but yet it is still the church, one body, belonging to Jesus Christ, who is the head of the body. The church is an amazing thing. It is very adaptable, and it can do many things. And God loves his church, and he loves to work through it. Thank you, guys. Thank you. So, the church is like a body, and it's building community to reach community. That's what the church is doing in this form, building community to reach a community. Now, why Sunday? Why, why does the church gather on Sunday? Most churches have had their large group gathering on Sundays because it's the day that Jesus rose from the dead, and it was also the day that the church first started. There's nothing that the, the Lord commands about meeting on this day. It's a tradition, although the Bible does say, do not forsake gathering together. It doesn't indicate a specific day. Today, there are many Christ followers who have their, their large group gatherings on different days and different times. There's a lot of churches right here in town that meet on Saturday nights. 
That's when they do their thing. Now, why should I be a part of the church? Why? The church, the church, is what you already, already belong to if you're a Christ follower. To be a part of a church, I believe, can be the greatest contributing factor to the spiritual formation of your life. You know, I could be a pretty good Christian if I went off and I lived on a deserted island. You know, I could, I could you know, not be tempted to do a lot of bad things if I was on a desert, deserted island all by myself. And I could really devote myself to worship of God and studying uh, the scriptures and really gaining all kinds of knowledge about Christ. But you know what? The thing I'd find out is that I couldn't carry out half the commands in the Bible. Because most of the commands in the Bible are these one another commands. They're things like uh, love one another, pray for one another, uh, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, bear one another's burdens. When I'm a part of a local church, a part of a community, it means transformation in my life and a richness in my faith that I could never experience isolated. When I do those things, when I bear other people's burdens, when I love someone, when I pray for another person, there are things that stretch me and make me grow. And it's something I need in my life for God to do what he wants to do, fulfill his purposes in me as an individual and his purposes in you as an individual. Being a part of the church keeps me in healthy relationships and connected to practices of the Christian faith that are be done in relationship with others, with the body. A church doesn't just guide me in right belief. It also keeps me true to my practice of the faith. It is my community of practice. Just like lawyers, doctors, engineers get together within associations that come together and encourage ethical and outstanding practice among their profession, a local church or a jail group within that church is my community that encourages me to be a better Christ follower. Being part of a local church helps me to identify my spiritual gifting and my unique role in the local church and the body of Christ at large. There are so many other things I could say about why be a part of the church. But the greatest thing for me, and I don't know if this is the greatest thing for everybody else, maybe it's just the way I'm wired and I get excited about it, but it's when I am part of a church which is a part of the church around the world, <coughs> excuse me, I know that I am joining God on a mission. I'm joining God on a mission. The church is God's main instrument for carrying out his will on the earth. I know that I was not created to chase the wind. I want to be a part of what God is doing. I don't want to miss out. What would it feel like to lay your head on your pillow at night and say, you know what I did today? I teamed up with God to change the world. Wouldn't that be awesome? I don't know about you, but I want to serve the purposes of God in my generation. I don't want to waste my time on my own selfish purposes. I hope that you will join me in the greatest adventure in following Jesus. And Jesus says he wants us to do that together as his bride, as the body, as the church. And in that adventure, I believe that you're going to come to recognize that Jesus loves his church, his bride, and he wants to work powerfully through her to demonstrate his heart toward this flailing world that is gasping and on its last dying breath. The church is the hope for this world. And I'm excited 
I'm excited about how God is assembling a group of people here, authentic people who love Jesus and are so talented and wonderful. We're here at Highland not to do church better. That's not what we're about. We're here just trying to deconvert from churchanity to Christianity. We're just trying to to figure out how do we really follow Jesus today in the 21st century. We're not here to exist for ourselves, but we're here to ask the question, how can I bless those around me? In my neighborhood, my school campus, in my workplace. And as we look to Jesus, the originator of our faith, we're going to figure that out. And we're going to find this path together at Highland. I have no idea what the future holds. I have no idea. But I'm so excited, even though I don't know. But that's part of the adventure. It is. And it's part of the risk. It's part of the excitement. So I'm glad that the adventure has started. I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you're saying by being here that you want to be a part of that adventure. Dear Lord, thank you so much for what you're doing in the church the church that you love, that you gave yourself up for, that you stretched out your arms on the cross and died for. Lord, help us never forget, even though sometimes we might bump into some struggles within the church and in our relationships with people within the church, Lord, that you love the church and that you are doing great things to the church. Lord, thank you for what you're building. Thank you for including us and asking us to be a part of the mission that you're accomplishing here on this planet. In Jesus' name, amen.